If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us that we are a Bible-believing church. Right? That means that we believe the Bible is true, but not just true the way a phone book or a dictionary is true. We believe the Bible is true in a way that is practical and applies to our everyday life. Right? We believe that when God's word is read and God's word is faithfully preached, God's voice is heard. No matter what the text. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. That is inspired by him, and it's useful, all of it, all of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we're here today, we're getting, we're not only here just to worship God, we are, but we're also getting equipped, we're getting locked and loaded so we can go into battle for another week. That is why Paul told Timothy just a few verses later, 2 Timothy 4, Verse 2, preach the word. So my job as a shepherd under the great shepherd is not to give you my opinion. It isn't worth much. In the words of Groucho Marx, these are my opinions. If you don't like them, I have some other ones. (laughs) So my job is not to give you my opinion. My job is not to stand up here and entertain you with stand-up comedy or witty sayings or clever anecdotes. It's not to move you with emotional stories that make you warm and fuzzy and yummy in your tummy. Nothing wrong with any of those things. That's just not the pastor's primary task. My job is to feed the sheep. The task of preaching is to say what God says, to proclaim what God has done. And since that's the case, whoever fills this pulpit should have spent time digging into the word. This this is why, again, Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best. The King James Version is study. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. There is a correct way to handle the word of truth. So I don't, and I instruct anybody else who gets into this pulpit, I don't come unprepared. And I tell them, don't, don't step into God's pulpit unprepared. You study, you, you work hard, you think hard, you pray hard, you seek the, you fast if you have to, so that when you step into the pulpit, people get a sense that you just came from the presence of God and you're about to deliver a word from God. And you ought to have that kind of expectation as a church. And we were sung worship, we've been worshiping God, and when whoever it is steps into the pulpit, you ought to have an anticipation. God's about to talk. It's not about who's up here. I mean, if Jesus walked in here physically this morning, you'd probably pay attention. Well, first you'd probably fall on your face. That's what happened with John. You know, he, it is, his eyes are like fire and his voice is like Niagara Falls. You, first you fall down. But then after he touches you and picks you back up, you would be on the edge of your seat this morning. What, what Jesus going to say? You'd pay attention. Well, this week I, I started working on a series of messages as I was doing. I was preparing that. I was studying to show myself approved. I, I was getting ready, and, and I was putting together a series of messages on the questions that Jesus asked. And I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, but Jesus asked a lot of questions in the gospel. To be exact, 307. 
in the Gospels. So I was working on this series, and I was, gonna, I was getting really excited about it, and, I, and I, th I thought I had a good outline. Everything was great until Thursday I got arrested, not by the police, by the Holy Spirit. And I had this strong sense of leading not to start that because while we are a church that is a Bible-believing church, at the same time, we are a church that believes that the Holy Spirit is alive and well today, and he can lead us today. And we can be full of and led by and walking in the Spirit today. So as I was doing that, I felt like the Spirit of God put his finger on something, and I am today a messenger from God to tell you what he said. So I want to share this. And I believe it's particularly for, it's for all of us, but particularly for somebody here. And, and the title of this message is Killing the Root of Bitterness. Now, I don't know who you are that needs to hear this. Um, maybe this is all for me. Sometimes that happens. I don't know if you ever noticed this. Sometimes the dude who's preaching gets the most out of it. But I know this, the Holy Spirit has arrested this service. He's interrupted my plans, because I always tell him he can interrupt, and not that he's my permission anyway, he is God after all. But I have a sense of urgency. I, I, I want to plead with you to hear the word of the Lord this morning. It can change your life. I mean, Paul said it this way in, in Romans 12. He said, I urge you. First Corinthians, he said, I plead with you. I appeal to the King James Version. I beseech thee. So this is your pastor this morning pleading with you, appealing to you, beseeching I don't even know if that's a word or not, but that's what I'm doing, that you hear what God is saying today. Hebrews 12, a single verse, and we're going to unpack it. Hebrews 12, verse 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now to unpack that, you need to know the context. The, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who the world had turned against. They had experienced persecution. We know that because of chapter 10. They've had the confiscation of their property. Some of them were thrown in prison. Some stood with those who were so treated. And they remained faithful. And beyond faithful, they were joyful. Can you imagine that they were taking their property and they were, they were going, go ahead, take it. I got a better, uh, I got a better inheritance than that. I got a lasting inheritance. And they were joyful with that. But now they're being tempted to throw in the towel, to give up. Maybe they were even going to give up their faith. I mean, martyrdom hadn't happened. We know that from chapter 12. But the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, and we that, you know, for those who are new, my dad and I debate on who wrote Hebrews. He thinks it's Paul. He's wrong. But that, that's okay. Whoever wrote Hebrews, what they're saying is don't give up, persevere. And the whole letter is designed to give them confidence in the face of persecution and an attack by a culture that doesn't like them. Does that sound familiar to you? We live in a culture today that's becoming increasingly hostile to God and the things of God. And if you're feeling right now that you don't know if you, you can keep going, if you're feeling like giving up on God or maybe I'm going to give up on church or maybe I'm giving up on being a disciple of Jesus, Hebrews is for you. The whole argument of the letter is Jesus is greater. It's the whole argument. I mean, he's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the priesthood. His sacrifice is superior. His covenant is superior. So where else are you going to go? He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Who else are you going to look to? 
And then the author is just pleading with them, don't give up. And we have that chapter 11, which is this amazing chapter of the heroes of the faith. And then he begins chapter 12 with this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You know, the church isn't just the people in this room this morning. The, the church is all of the saints, even the ones that are already triumphant. We're the saints quick. They're the saints triumphant. They've gone on before us, but we're all part of the church. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And then he says at the end of verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What's he saying? Don't give up. Throw off anything that hinders you from running. Take off the sin that entangles you. And one of the things that you're supposed to throw off, one of the things that hinders us from running both then and today, the sin that so easily entangles is bitterness. Now, I think you would probably agree with me that we live in a time where the root of bitterness is growing as if on steroids. Or if you're a Marvel hero fan, it's been, like it's been exposed to gamma rays. And people are turning into the Hulk out there. People are getting angry. I mean, they just are. And, and they're holding on to bitterness. This is what the world we're living in. There's a lot of this out there. I mean, I just read this last week or uh, maybe it was two weeks ago. Uh, prior to 2020, the number of incidents investigated by airlines of unruly passengers was 143. That was prior to 2020. Just according, uh, up to two weeks ago, in the year 2021, you know how many there were? Just, we're not even through 2021 yet. Just to the beginning of October, there have been, are you ready? 3,715. 143 total before 3,715 just this year. Why? Because people are angry and bitter. I mean, we got a pandemic of COVID going on. Let me tell you, a worse pandemic, bitterness. Yeah. And if we're going to walk in the freedom Jesus won for us that we've been talking about in the Galatians series, that Christ said was for freedom, that Christ set us free, so no longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to deal with our bitterness. Now, pastorally, I want to recognize right here from the beginning that I may be exposing a wound right now that you haven't given me permission to expose. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. And, and for some of you, part of you just wants to keep it hidden. You don't want to think about it. You don't want to deal about it because you don't want the light of God's word to shine on it because you feel like it will be painful. And I get that. Oh, I do. I so get that. Because my natural inclination is to run away from pain. But you know what I want more than running away from pain? I want to live in the freedom Jesus won for me. And, and as your pastor, you know what I want for you? You know what I want more? I want you to live in the freedom. That Jesus won for you on the cross. And, and, and it's not just me. Jesus wants that for you. It was for freedom. That Christ set us free. The Holy Spirit has led us here to this verse for this day. For you. And you're here not on accident. You didn't accidentally show up here today. The Holy Spirit knew what was coming. And what you needed. So let's look at the text again. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And that no bitter root rose up to cause trouble and defile many. He starts off with, see to it. A.W. Tozer is great on this. He says, you see his deep pastoral concern here. Because this see to it could be translated, take heed. 
Beware, look out, be, be on the alert. This is hugely important. Do not miss the grace of God. Don't let a bitter root grow up. So I got two questions of the text, and that will form my outline. Just two, you're saying, not three, Tim? No, not three. Two questions, three subpoints. Okay. Two, question number one is this. What is a root of bitterness? And question number two is how do we kill it? What is a root of bitterness, and how do we kill it? First, what is a root of bitterness? I think the key to understanding what it is is that this text is alluding to an Old Testament passage that speaks of a bitter, poisonous root. Uh, Deuteronomy 29 says this, verse 18. Make sure, another way to say, see to it, that there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Now, in that text, the root is looking to other things other than God. And it's not just going to another God like, okay, now I'm going to quit worshiping Yahweh and go to Zeus or Poseidon or something like that. It's when you make anything ultimate in your life, that's your God. Whatever you look to to justify you, whatever you look to to make you feel okay about being you, that's your God. And he's saying, if you allow that to be anything other than the real God, what happens? There's a root in you, and it's poisonous. And so the author of Hebrews takes that image of a root of idolatry that produces poison, and he says that's what bitterness does. Bitterness is like a root of idolatry. You say, well, how, how can that be the case? Well, let's unpack it a little bit more. If you've got a root, what do you have? You've got to have a seed, and you've got to have some soil. So let's talk about the seed and the soil of bitterness. The seed of bitterness is a hurt, Okay. That something happened in your life and you got hurt. And can we just say this? We've all been hurt at some time. There is nobody for whom this sermon does not apply. If you haven't been wounded by somebody deeply in your life, I would calculate your age to be about three years old. If you're older than that, it applies. So the seed is hurt that comes to us all and no one is exempt from it. So don't be surprised when the seed of hurt gets thrown at you. It could be intentional, like maybe somebody did it on purpose. Because some people are mean. I'm just going to, here's some straight shooting from church today, friends. There's some mean people in the world. So sometimes it is intentional. But most of the time, you know what? The seed of hurt is unintentional. As we've said before, and I forget who I got this from, but most people don't do things to you. They do things for themselves. So a lot of the hurt we get in life isn't people doing stuff to us. It's they're just doing stuff for themselves, and they unintentionally hurt us. Sometimes the seed of hurt is intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes it's imagined. Has this ever happened to you? Something happens and you interpret it a certain way and you're like, and, and in your mind you build a narrative and you go, you, you know there's this gigantor house being built down the road here. Have y'all seen that? that I, my family, we have a whole narrative we built up around this that this is a sheik, an oil sheik, you know, from, and, 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 it, and we have this whole narrative and who is family member. Anyway, it's all imaginary, right? Have you ever had, the, you probably never done this, where something happened and you, and you thought somebody was mad at you and they probably meant this and they did that and when I talked to them, I'm going to say this and they probably going to say that and you have this whole conversation and it's all fake and it's in your mind. You ever had that? Sometimes the seed is imaginary hurt, but then it goes into the soil and the soil of bitterness for that seed to grow is a heart that harbors hostility. 
And when the seed comes in, it will plant in you. Now, if the soil in you is forgiving, releasing, letting go, if the soil has been thoroughly transformed by the gospel so that you have let the gospel in to say, I didn't save myself, I, I was saved by somebody else, so I can never look down on anybody, and I don't have to get anything from anybody, I don't have to get them to like me to feel accepted because I'm already accepted. I'm already approved of by the only eyes in the universe that matter. I'm already adopted into the family. I already call God the Father, Abba. And because of that, I don't have to be offended. You, don't, you can't control me. You know, if you get so thoroughly controlled by the gospel, nobody else can ever control you again. You don't have to be mad about anything ever, really. Because you can walk around like nobody owes you anything. Why? Because I got everything in my supreme treasure. What could you give me that I don't, that he can't get, that he doesn't give me? So if you do that, and that's, the seed goes in, but it doesn't plant. If, however, the soil in your heart is one of harboring hostility, then it will go in and it's like food feeding this, this, it begins to incubate. And once you harbor hurt, you look for reasons to justify how you feel. You become critical and fault finding and you try to justify the hatred and the bitterness that's growing in your heart. And can I just say this? Once you start looking to find fault, you will. Right? I mean, there's an old saying, I can't remember who said this first. I think it was Blaise Pascal, but maybe not. He said, the mind justifies what the heart has chosen. Isn't that the truth? I, I, know, I know a lot of people who don't believe in God, and, and the real reason is not that they came to an intellectual place there first. It was because in their heart they didn't want there to be a God so they could be God, and then their mind tries to justify it. It's not always the case, but sometimes the case. It is true that your mind justifies what your heart has chosen. So if you've already chosen to hold on to bitterness, your mind will try to work at justifying you holding on to the bitterness. And if you're looking for fault in a church, you're going to find it. I mean, if you're looking for fault here in New Life, you'll find it, okay? I mean, you know, you don't need a prophetic gift. I mean, you know, I'm a, I've been here 40 plus years. Okay, now, I, I can say that now. I, I used to say how long I've been a pastoral, but not, no, I've been here at New Life Church for over 40 years, and I'm still shocked. I am still shocked by people who are shocked that not everybody at New Life is perfect. <laughs> it always, they're like, I, this person hurt me, and I, you know, I didn't think there were people like that at New Life. I'm like, really? You're just now learning this? I've been here 40 years we've been doing this. Everybody's perfect at New Life. In fact, nobody is at New Life. So if you're visiting and you're not perfect, welcome. I mean, it just people getting frustrated by people at church and going, I can't believe there's hypocrites at New Life. I can. That's like saying, you know, that's like somebody saying, you know, I like going to the hospital, but every time I go, there's sick people there. That's why we call it a hospital. Well, every time I go to church, there's people who are not perfect. That's why we call it a church. And that's why you're allowed to come. Here's my point. If you're looking to find fault, you'll find it. If you're looking for Jesus, you'll find him too. So here's what happens. Here's what happens. The bitter person becomes critical and caustic. Why? Because they're trying to justify themselves. Their heart has chosen to hang on. So I'm going to justify. And they get sensitive. They get touchy. And the bitter, listen, the bitter person has little or no gratitude. Because 
You can't be grateful and bitter at the same moment. You can't have hatred and holiness in the same heart at the same time. And that's what the author of Hebrews is using this analogy. He said, what happens is you got the seed, you got the soil, and then this root begins to grow underground. And the picture is obvious. What he means is there's a hidden destroyer under the surface, and it's poisoning things underground, and that's affecting things above ground. A number of years ago, I, I, I read about the Chinese bamboo tree, which is fascinating. The Chinese bamboo tree, you plant this tree, for the first four years, you see no growth above the ground, zero. For four years. Then in the fifth year, listen to this. This is amazing. In the fifth year, it can grow up to 80 feet tall in six weeks. Why? Because for four years, it's had a root system that's been growing below the ground. You didn't know it. You couldn't see it. But it was growing the whole time. That's how bitterness is. And how deep does the bitterness go? You don't know until you try to start ripping out the roots. Usually it's deeper than you imagine, but let me tell you something. It doesn't have to be deep to be deadly. I was looking up, actually, Aiden looked up for me this week some information on oak trees. And it, it was interesting, you know, oak trees are pretty cool, pretty big. Uh, but the, their, their root system really doesn't go that deep. It just goes really wide. They have a tap root that will go three or five feet, you know, down deep. But then the rest of the roots will grow up to 250 feet out. Some oaks... Some of the older oaks, if you took them out of the ground, lined up all of their roots, it would be a linear mile. And sometimes, sometimes you, bitterness is like that. You, you don't even know there's a root of bitterness there until you're dealing with some paralyzing event in your life and you can't shake it. And there may be some people here and, you, and you're saying, that, that, that's me, I, I can't. Maybe something's growing underneath the ground. A few, few years ago, there, Marlene and I, when we lived in Minnesota, there was a church we were kind of affiliated there with, and, the, and their pastor there, David, he told a story of, of vegetable gardening, and, and, and he built like this raised garden, and he put in vegetables, and he planted, and it had a great crop. I mean, it was amazing. There was tomatoes coming up, and he said, it was the best tomatoes we ever ate, and you know, just all this stuff, and it was beautiful. Well, then they sold that house, and they moved to another house, and this house they bought had a three-tier raised garden bed. Three tiers, and he was excited. Oh, this is going to be great. So he goes out there, and he's planting seeds, you know, all the vegetables he's going to have. And the neighbor walks over to the fence, and his name is Bob, and he says, like, what you planting there? And, you know, Pastor David's all excited. I'm planting them, tomatoes and this and this. I'm planting this. And uh, Bob looks at it and goes, uh-uh, never work. Turns around and walks back into his house. Well, Pastor David's like, oh, yeah, I'll show him. And he, he goes, hey, Bob, I did this one year already. I'm pretty much an expert. He plants all of his stuff. He said about a month into it, every plant had withered up and died. So the next time he saw Bob out in his yard, he walks up to the fence and says, what's up, Bob? You know, what gives? And Bob turns around and he points to five or six black walnut trees. He says, see, those, those are black walnut trees. The root systems of black walnut trees are toxic to vegetables. And here's what he learned. There's a toxin called juglone, or I probably slaughtered the pronunciation of that if I did, and you're a botanist or arborist or whatever, forgive me, okay? 
I think it's juglone. It's a toxin that's released wherever the roots of black walnut trees go, and the toxicity goes up into the ground. Now, the root system can be twice as far reaching as the canopy of the tree, sometimes four times. So if the canopy is 70 feet, then the minimum is 140 feet or maybe 280 feet. See, often, you guys, there are unseen toxins affecting our growth. There are things happening under the surface that we, and we run into these growth issues over and over again. And you think, why are my vegetables dying? I, I know the Lord. Why am I not living in the fruit of the spirit? Maybe it's because there's some toxic roots sabotaging your growth. Let me just ask you a question. Is there anything dying in your life right now and you don't know why? Is it possible? And I'm not saying it is this. I'm just... I'm throwing this out for you to consider. Is it possible that there's a bitter root in there that's releasing toxins? Back to the text. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. And then look at this. Defile many. Now, the root of bitterness defiles me. Now, oftentimes, up until probably this week, when I read that, what I thought of was that there was a lot of individuals who had bitterness. And so, because I basically have always seen bitterness is something that affects you. And, and we often have this saying, and I think, I don't know if it was Brother Charles that said this first or somebody who said this first, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. And, and, and we quote that to me, and, and by the way, I believe that's true. In fact, there's another saying, bitterness is like acid. It eats the container in which it's stored, not the person on whom you wish it poured. That's true, too. And so because of those things, I've always kind of seen if I'm bitter, I'm just hurting myself, you know. Uh, and if I refuse to forgive somebody, I'm not hurting them. I'm just hurting me. And I'm, you know, but here's what he says here, that this root of bitter, he says, don't let, make sure no one, singular, misses God, so that no bitter root cause grows up or springs up, I think it's the ESV says, and causes trouble and defiles many. Now we're at plural. Because bitterness never just affects you. Your bitterness affects those around you. You know why? Because the roots never stay in your yard. Bitterness deeply affects who you become, and who you become affects the people around you. Let me tell you something. One bitter per person can destroy a business. One bitter person can divide a family. One bitter person can divide a church. You know why? Because bitterness is like this cancer. You can't see it. It's underground. It's underneath the surface, and it's eating you away. Underneath. Let me tell you something. I strongly believe that bitterness has done more to stunt the growth of the kingdom of God than pornography. Or political differences. Or different problems in our culture that we get so upset about and we probably should be upset about. Let me tell you something that's worse. Bitterness. So you say, how do we kill it? I mean, if it's a silent killer that's destroying us, families, businesses, churches, how do we combat it? How do we, is there a chemotherapy for bitterness? Well, let me give you three subpoints. Three things to do, okay? And this is not three, like, quick, easy steps. These are just three things that come out of the scriptures. And, and I was writing these down this week, and I was trying to think of ways to make them memorable, and I couldn't think of ways to make it memorable. And then I read a thing by Adrian Rogers, and he made it memorable, so I'm stealing his words. Okay. 
for the points, okay? Excuse me, sub points. Number one, you want to kill bitterness? Right, let me just ask, would you guys like to know how to kill bitterness? Yes. I'm not going to assume that you really want the answer here, okay? I, I do too. I want to kill it in me. I don't want to kill it in this church. Amen. Number one, let God reveal it. It's the first thing we got to do, guys. Let God reveal it. Ephesians 5, verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So here's what you got to do. You expose your bitterness to the eyes of God. And you just say to God, I got some ugly stuff in here. Because listen to me, you cannot heal from that which you are unwilling to admit. If you're being fake and, and, you're, and you're trying to project this image to God, like, God, I got everything to control, I'm good, God, I don't need you know, then, then he, he can't heal that because it isn't real. God can't heal the fake projection of you because it doesn't exist. It's, that's like saying, hey, can you fix a mirage? No. Why? It isn't real. It's not there. Right? So to get healed by God, what do you do? You go to God and you say, I got some, and you just ask him for help. And maybe you think, I, I don't even know if I have anything in there. Well, here's what you do. You ask him to search you. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 139, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist is like, I don't even really know my heart fully, because here's the deal, you know, what is it, Jeremiah, oh man, what is it, Jeremiah 17 or so, the, the human heart is deceitfully wicked, <laughs> and very deceptive, right, I mean, like, you're, you're, what is it, 17.9? Is that what you said? I'd like to introduce to you my walking concordance, my father. <laughs> that would be Jeremiah 17.9 for those of you who are keeping score at home. Because um, sometimes you can deceive yourself. You know what James says? He says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer also, because if you just hear the word and don't do it, you deceive yourself. And the deception is you think you actually did something. So what do you do? Lord, I, I think I, I don't, I, I might have, I know I got some ugliness in there and I might have more. Can you just show me? Reveal it. And then he begins the healing process because you can't do it. You, you can admit, you can ask for help, but you can't fix your heart. So you do your job and let, you know, as we say at our house, you do you. So, you know, you, you do your job and let God do his job and ask him. I, I can't think of a better illustration of that in all of literature than in the Chronicles of Narnia, in, written by our beloved author, C.S. Lewis. Um, um, it, it, the Voyage of the Don Treader. Have you ever read this? Yes, thank you. A few have. And for those of you sad souls who haven't read it, let me just tell you the story. So there's this kid who's really irritating. I mean, like, he is really irritating, okay? His name is Eustace. He wanders off from the group, and he discovers a dragon's lair with a dragon's treasure. So he goes in. I mean, there's all this gold and all this stuff, and he's in a dragon. The dragon's not there, and, he, and, and he's just playing in it, and then he falls asleep. And now here's the problem. Eustace had read all the wrong books, 
You and I would have known this because we've read the right books, but his were all about math and geometry and all that. He didn't know much about dragons, and so he didn't know that if you fall asleep in a dragon's lair on a dragon's treasure and you have dragonish thoughts in your heart, you become a dragon. You and I would know these things. Eustace did not. He falls asleep, he wakes up, he's a dragon now. And he tries to make himself not a dragon, can't do it. And he wants to communicate to his friends, but he can't do it because he's become a dragon. Let me just tell you something. Bitterness will turn you into something you never wanted to be. And he can't, he can't fix himself until one day he meets face to face with Aslan. Aslan is the great lion who represents Jesus Christ. And, 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 and when the kids first talk to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan uh, and they find out that he's a lion, they get kind of scared. And, and Lucy says, well, is he safe? Safe, Mr. Beaver says. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So Eustace, as the dragon, runs into the Aslan and Aslan says, you must undress. And, and so he tries to, he, he's thinking, you know, a dragon's kind of like a snake, and so I can just, like a snake can shed its skin, I'll just try to shed it. And he does. He sheds his skin only to see that there's more underneath. And he does this like two or three times, and he realizes it's futile. He can't fix himself. And then Aslan says, you must let me undress you. And then the great lion takes the claws, and he digs it in deep into his skin, and it hurts but he peels away the dragon skin. And then Eustace has no skin on, and he picks him up and puts him in a pool of water, and instantly he's a little boy again. And then Aslan dresses him in a fine robe because now he's who he's been made to be. And of course the point is this. You have a choice, don't you? You have the choice of staying in your sin, and you have the pain of staying in your sin, or you can choose the pain of transformation. And you can't do it yourself. Aslan does it, right? In the story, Jesus. So number one, you let God reveal it. Number two, you let grace remove it. See, we spend a lot of time working on the meaning and the application of the gospel in our series on Galatians. But this is where the rubber meets the road. You have to let grace in for you first and believe the gospel for you. You didn't save yourself. You have been justified because of what Jesus did on the cross. You've been accepted by God, adopted into his family. You call him Abba now. You're already accepted. And you have to let that in and really let it in and really believe it. That's why he says, or the author of Hebrews says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Because if you miss that, if you miss the grace of God, everything else I'm talking about, getting rid of bitterness, doesn't make any sense and it doesn't apply. You have to start with God's grace. And then what do you do? You extend that same grace to the person who hurt you and you forgive them. Ephesians 4 verse 31, get rid of all bitterness. And by the way, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And malice is when you want to hurt somebody, cause physical harm to them. Be kind and compassionate to one another. How do we get rid of all bitterness? Here you go. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. How do we forgive people? The same way he forgave us. Colossians 3 verse 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave 
you. Hear me. You don't create forgiveness. You just pass along what you've been given. And then you know what you do? You give up your claim to revenge. As one author says, forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. And when you do that, you kill bitterness. And you enjoy the freedom that God won for you, that Jesus won for you on the cross. I can think of no better illustration of that than the story of Corey Timboom. You may have heard of the story. Her story is told in a book called The Hiding Place. She was, I believe, in Holland, if I'm not mistaken. She was Dutch. And she and her family were hiding Nazis from, uh, no, hiding Jews from the Nazis, excuse me. They were hiding Jews from the Nazis. And they were captured. They were put in a prison camp. Her sister Betsy died in the prison camp as well as her other family members. She was supposed to die, but they made a clerical mistake and she was released. But possibly the most moving part of her story is what happened after she was released. And she went around speaking in churches around the world. And she was talking about forgiveness. And her message of forgiveness was tested very early on when in 1947... She came face to face with one of her torturers. She was in Germany. And at the end of one of her talks, a man came forward. And here's what she writes. I I can't improve on what she wrote. I'm just going to read to you what she wrote. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. The place was Ravensbrück, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. He was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is, as you say, that all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, I who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed as hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. 
The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who've injured us. I knew it not as just a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had, come, uh, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love as intensely as I did then. I, I, I don't know what the seed that came into your life was. I, I don't, it, maybe it was horrific, maybe it was evil, and I don't minimize that, and I don't minimize the pain you've been through. But I want you to know, if God can help Corey Ten Boom forgive a Nazi guard, he can help you forgive whatever it is let God reveal it let grace remove it grace that you receive first and then you give by forgiving number three let good replace it let God reveal it let grace remove it let good replace it do you see why I stole this from Adrian Rogers he said it better than me so there you go now <laughs> very briefly you can't just rip out a root of bitterness and then leave it empty. You can't just leave a spiritual vacuum under the surface in your heart. You now replace it. And you bless your offender. Now, I know some of you are thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> it's bad enough that we forgive them. That's too much, Tim. Do you want to be free? I mean, do you really want to be free from a root of bitterness and its infects? Do you want to see true transformation? Do, do you want to stay the dragon that bitterness has turned you into? Or do you want to become who God created you to be? And which one do you want more? That's the question. Here's how Jesus said it. I'll quote Jesus and then we'll be done. Luke 6, verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, which wasn't just them back there, it's you hearing it right now. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray 
for those who mistreat you. Then he goes on further down in verse 35. He says this, love your enemies, do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then listen to this. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Let me tell you something. This is not easy, I know. This is why you need God's help. And this is why grace is always prior. If I just come and say, here's what you should do, that just becomes legalism. That's not the gospel. But if I come and tell you grace is available, now here that you've, now that you receive grace, here's how you walk, that's something altogether different. Grace is always prior. So here's the deal. Here's what Jesus says right there. It's right there in the text. When you bless those who curse you, when you do good to your enemy, you're acting like our father. You're acting like your Abba. And your reward will be great. And part of that reward is that you're free. You're free. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many.